So let's pray. Dear God, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds. Uh, this is not a contest of how smart we are. This isn't an IQ test, a proficiency exam. Lord, this is your word to us. Uh, we pray, Father, that for us to understand that your word tells us that we need your help to open our eyes, to even give us a desire to even care what's being said, to, to desire it as you, Jesus, have told us in parables that this person knew about this treasure in, in this land and did everything he could to buy that land to have that treasure. And I pray, Father, that we look upon this book as containing and having your words that you have given to us. That every word that we have is trustworthy to know it's from you and so that we can sit back and enjoy and desire and eat and pray that it will have its way with us because it is your will and desire to have your way with us, Lord. By your grace and mercy, Lord, you bring blind people sight, people who are deaf and all of us, including in this, is this blindness and deafness at a time in our life when we didn't, we heard these and could not see them, what they meant or hear that and not get what it meant. And now, Lord, because you have changed us and transformed us, we now have the ability to hear your word, to desire it, and to learn from it. And yes, Lord, it does tell us, there are things in it that does tell us how to live our life, but it is only a direct result and consequence of you working in our lives and realizing what we are to do and why we are to do it. And that we are to obey, not because we gain favor with you, but because we have favor with you in Christ. And Lord, that transforms and changes everything about church, changes everything about the Bible, changes everything about our lives. So Father, I pray by your grace and by your mercy, you would allow us to feel that work and power again here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I'm reading from chapter 5, verses 11 to chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 2. And it's important to see that there's a word therefore in the beginning, so we need to remember, we'll get to the point what happened beforehand. Because therefore wouldn't be there, but because of a reason. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we are, what we are is known to God, and, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to post, boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, constrains us, because we have concluded this, 
that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new thing. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, lots of therefores, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Uh, there was a, I may have mentioned this before, but in a previous ministry, somebody came up to me and said they wanted to have a class on evangelism. And so I said, okay, let's have a class on evangelism. And we had, I think, 8, 10, 12 people come, which is like, wow. For a small church, 8, 10, 12 people, it's like half the congregation, you know. So I asked them in the beginning of the class, what are we all here for? Oh, we're, learn we're, we're a class on evangelism. So what do you think this should be? And everybody gave me all these different answers and anything that my agenda was about. I said, well, we're not going to do any of those things. What we're going to do is we're going to look at Scripture and we're going to come to understand what evangelism is. Not what you think it is. Yes, there are different systems. There are different uh, kinds of methodologies that we use and people are very aware of and God uses, but it's not about the methodology. And they kind of looked at me and I said, what we're going to do is we're going to look at scripture and we're also going to start reading some books by people who know what evangelism is and is going to give us the focus that we need. I've mentioned to you these books to you before. The very first book that we read and we spent quite a long time in is J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism, the, the Sovereignty, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's key because it kind of it gives us the understanding that it's not about us. It's not about our programs. It's not about our methodology. It's not how good we are. It's all about God's sovereignty. Oh, just to let you know that after that first class, there was only two people left in the class. Two. And one of them wasn't even from our church. 
But they enjoyed it. They appreciated it because it gave them a perspective that they never saw before because they're focused on everything else but. So the other books would be uh, evangelism and uh, preaching the gospel or preaching grace Evangelism or doing evangelism and preaching grace by Harvey Kahn is one that I've given uh, to the to the session to read and uh, have mentioned it before and it's it looks thin but it's heavy it's not easy reading it's pretty technical Harvey Kahn was an academic person but this again transformed Tim Keller everybody knows how Tim Keller looks at evangelism how his ministry is, and it was Harvey Kahn's book that really kind of swayed him and got him to think about how to do things differently in a perspective. And then there's a book by uh, Jerem Bars called Learning Evangelism from Jesus, which is great. We read that book. Did that in a, Sunday, in a Bible study, uh, weekly uh, service. Uh, that was excellent. Takes Bible passages about uh, the parables or the, or, the, or the gospels and actually pulls ways of how Jesus, what did he say and how did he approach people and what was his understanding of why he was doing it. Um, other than, I believe, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, I've come, I, I, well, I've got to tell you kind of sidebar that 2 Corinthians has become one of my top books of the Bible. Now, I know that's kind of, you shouldn't say those things. Because the book is the book that we should all love. But from a New Testament perspective, I mean, I love Romans and I love Ephesians. I could stay, you know, as you know, I've preached almost 100 sermons or so from the book, not here, but from the book of Romans, two and a half, three years. Uh, the Ephesians can, is a great, great book. But 2 Corinthians has just come for me as a pastor and as an understanding of ministry and understanding that we are all involved in this ministry, understanding where Paul's coming from, his motivation, being distracted. Now, remember, we've talked about this how many times? And it's always good to have a context. Paul was so distracted. In fact, he gave up the opportunity that God had opened up a ministry for him someplace else. He was so concerned about what was happening in Corinth that he, he had to couldn't go to that door that was open because he was so concerned about the church that existed and they were going in the wrong direction and they were being led by and following people who were deceiving them and so you you and i've known and, and we come to understand and the term that i use is making sure that your compass is always pointed in the right direction because if you and I know, and I'm not, a, I have, I'm not, many of you are much outdoor people than I ever have been. I mean, you're outside, you're hiking, you're canoeing, you're in mountains, you camp, you know, compasses are important. Uh, nowadays we have technology, but I mean, people who, you know, you have to understand where Magnetic North is to know your directions. Or you could find out which way the sun sets, rises and sets helps as well. But as a kid, I remember being in elementary school and primary school, and I remember being in a science class, and this is north. Now turn this way. This is north. Now turn this way. Now this is north. Magnetic north pole. But then the teacher would take a magnet and put it next to the side of the compass, and what happened? All of a sudden, it went that direction. It didn't go that direction anymore. It went wherever the magnet was. 
And as you and I, I've been talking about this so often, is saying that in life, that's what happens to us, is that we become so distracted and we become so disoriented by stuff in life. That are, that's real stuff. I'm not discounting the stuff. Then there are things that we create that we think are important that really are not important, but they're still stuff that have a magnetic pull to them that take our focus off a magnetic north, so to speak. And that is what? For Christians, it's Jesus. It's the purpose for us calling ourselves believers. Why are we believers? What did we say to the Lord if we are true believers, if we have been brought from life from death, if we have brought, been brought from blindness now into sight, if we have been brought from darkness now into light, then our lives are not the same. Paul knew that in the road to Damascus, the book of Acts chapter 9, I mean, what the man just, just life turned completely upside down. Completely upside down. A man whose passion and compass was north, and then all of a sudden he realized that north wasn't north, really, was it? For him, north meant this place, wherever his heart or his philosophy, or his religion, wherever his passion took him, that's where he thought he was right. He was killing people for it. And then all of a sudden he met Jesus and north changed. Paul is being distracted here because the people that he loves, the church that God allowed him to find and to grow, is now off kilter by someone coming and deceiving them. Sounding good, sounding cool, looking great, all the bling that you can bring. Outward appearances, cool, right? Performances, recommendations, got a big briefcase full of them. All the TV shows, all the books that are out there, all the cars parked in the parking lot. They kept on looking at Paul. Paul, what a pathetic apostle you are. Now you gotta remember too that in the book in the first the first uh, letter, or we have is the first letter of Corinthians. Remember all the distractions that were going on there as well? Lots of distractions, right? Especially in chapters 12, 13, and 14, where they're looking at spiritual gifts. There were people saying, Wow, look at all the power. Look at these ecstatic things that these people are saying and doing, all these miracles. Wow, these people must be from God. This must be the way that we go to find the deepness of a relationship with God. And what does Paul say? Paul says this, he goes, you know, I can show those too. I do those things too. But he says, I'd rather speak and prophesy and preach in a way that people understand because I'm speaking for God to people that they understand. And then he says, you may have all those things, right? That beautiful love passage, you may, you know, if you're just a, ga a, ga a gonging symbol, loud symbol, and you don't have love, you've got nothing. And how many people read those at weddings thinking that, wow, this is about their wedding day when it has nothing to do about a wedding day. There's everything it is to do a walk for, with Christ. And so he was distracted by these people and these appearances of these people who were powerful 
And, and Paul was saying, you know, I do those things too, but that's not the importance. It isn't that that makes me apostle. It is the content of my message. That's of who I am. And that's what he's defending himself here in this book over and over again. And again, remember I talked about is that though when he talks about us, he is collectively talking about the apostles. It trickles down to us. Okay? It trickles down to us. It comes right back to us again. So yes, we may not be apostles, and I guarantee you you're not an apostle because there are no apostles. They're gone. They died. And there's never an office of an apostle ever to be found again, regardless of what people say on churches and how they confirm themselves. And they ordain apostles, but they don't exist. Biblically, they say they can't exist. But we are all apostles. We are sent by God. We are all in a mission. Not like the Blues Brothers. But we are in a mission from God. Because of the gospel. And this passage is the reason why we do evangelism. This is our motivation for evangelism. This is why we do it. This is how we do it. This is so important. This passage is it all. It's that powerful of a passage. And we're all called to be evangelists. Some of us are called by God and are given the giftedness of evangelism. And some of us have a desire and a great interest and a passion for doing that. But all of us, as Peter says, we all must be have to at some time to give that answer for the hope that lies within us. We're not only evangelists, we're apologists. We give a defense of our faith. And if we don't have the ability to do that, do we really know what we're so stinking happy about? Do we really know why we're even here? Do we really know what on earth are we doing calling ourselves Christians? Why not be something else? Following an invisible dead man. So Paul is this, he talks about the motivation of his ministry and he says, these guys are, they have everything going in a direction except their love for you and the content of their message. They're, ser they're, they're uh, servants of the devil. They're peddlers of the word of God. They're in it because they want the notoriety. They're getting paid for it. They're becoming celebrities and they're doing it all for the wrong reasons. And so he keeps on going back to the gospel. He keeps on going back to Jesus. He keeps on going that Jesus was God. Jesus was a man, fully God, fully man. He paid the perfect price for sin and he lived the perfect life to obey God. You and I can't do that. We need somebody. Jesus is the only way. That's our message. As narrow-minded as the world wants to tell us we are, there ain't no other way to go. We can't go in any other direction. So if you don't like being considered narrow-minded, then you better not become a Christian. Don't mention you ever go to church anywhere. Don't tell people anything about your faith because... The gospel is very narrow in its understanding that Jesus is the only way. The cry of the Reformation, Sola Christus, Christ alone. 
so we see that Paul is saying that these people think they're sufficient, but they're not sufficient. We're sufficient because God's called us to do that. God's given us the ability to do that. We have the message of the gospel. As he tells them last week, as we, well, not last week, <laughs> as we looked at this two weeks ago, notice what he says in about his understanding in the beginning of 10 verses of chapter 5. He says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on a heavenly dwelling. We are, our bodies are, as we've remarked, you know, our bodies are falling apart. Our bodies are getting older. The aches and pains of, 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 of getting, you know, a certain age and getting older just happen when you're youthful. It doesn't even, you don't even think about it. But we desire, even as young people, even as youth, they should desire to have that heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not to be unclothed. We don't want to have not, not to have that, that uh, resurrection body, he says. It's he, verse 5, who's prepared us. It's God who's prepared us for this very thing. Who has given us his Holy Spirit as a promise, as a down payment, that when he tells us it's true, it's true. He secured it for us by giving us a taste a taste of eternal life. The already but the not yet. Having the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit living within us, the Spirit of Christ living within us as now our lives are the very temple of the living God. Because, But yet you and I know that God has given us the ability now to speak to Him face to face because of Jesus. We now enter into this remarkable, wonderful grace of entering into the very heart of God through Christ. He says, so we may get, we, he says, don't lose heart, he says in chapter 4. He says it a couple times because you and I know, and he's telling us, he says, you know, you can lose track of why you even exist. Stuff can happen in your life. Ministry can become hard. Life can become hard. Being in church can become hard. But don't lose sight of the prize. Don't lose sight of the reason of why. Why Christ died. Don't lose sight of the very message that is key to our understanding of eternal life. Of having peace with God. So he says, he says, be of good courage. He says, we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. Yeah. We're all longing for that day. He says, so whether we're at home or whether we're away, our aim, our aim in life is what? Our aim is to please him. That's the compass. That's the compass that keeps on pointing us north. Correct? North is that we're obedient and we desire to follow in the footsteps of Christ. As 1 John says, everybody who follows Christ has to walk like Christ did. Now, you and I know that we can't be perfect, but we go through the process. We do everything we can to please God, as if our life depended on it. We live as if we're supposed to work for our salvation, but we know that it does not depend upon our salvation. Because if we can't, if we, you and I are imperfect. He says in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so what he's telling everybody there, that there is a judgment day. 
He's writing to the church in Corinth. He truly believes that these people know who Jesus is. But people within the church may not all be Christians, and they may not all be followers of Christ, and they may not be, all, be very partial to or may be following these opponents to Christ. And so he appeals to them from the very basic of the gospel, and he says, you're going to die someday, and you're going to be judged. As the book of Hebrews says, it is appointed that you die once, and then you are judged. That's it. That's reality. And then he says, therefore, in light of the fear of the Lord, or knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, when we look at the Bible, we talk about the fear of the Lord. Many times, we'll describe it, pastors, people will describe the fear of the Lord as a reverence and an awe for God, right? But, there's a dimension to the gospel that is fearsome. And that is that God is an angry God and here is his wrath. And that if we are not at peace with God, we need to be worried about the wrath of God and the judgment of God. I mean, is it, that's, what, that's what really is the gospel. God is angry at sinners. We are all sinners. Therefore, we are in serious trouble. How do we get out of that? Well, there's a man named Jesus who comes, who rescues us, who is our Savior, who then becomes our peace with God. And we no longer have to fear God, but now we have a fear that goes towards reverence and awe. But in this part, when he tells us we know the fear of the Lord, there are two elements here. Yes, the reverence and the awe of God, but that fear of that we're going to be die someday and we are going to have to be judged by God. Does that make a difference in your life? Does it make the difference in some people? Some people in some churches, you watch them, you listen to them, they never talk about judgment, they never talk about sin, they never talk about the depravity of the human heart, which is complete, complete, radically at the very root of human, human existence, is, is, is that we are evil. Every part of our being, we're not completely evil, but every facet of our being, of our personality, of our thinking, has been ruined by sin. That's what total depravity is all about. We're just not sick. We're dead. And so he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, he is saying that you've been actively working against God. In Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, he says, you were, you were children of the wrath of God. You were against God, and God was against you. But now in Christ, but in Christ, what a great word, but in Christ, or but Christ, now you are, your life's completely different. You are now a new creation. You are now a workmanship of the work of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, because we know the fear, right, the judgment is coming, and we have the reverence and the fear of God and the awe of God, he says this, what do we do? The reason why we know this, we persuade others. Now he's using a little jab here to the articulate rhetoricians of the day, those Greco-Roman people who are, who are driving around these beautiful cars and saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus on the side of it. And I'm here to save your church, or I'm here to save America, I'm here to do something like that. And wow, look at this guy, he must be blessed. Look at how good he looks, look at the money he's got, look at how powerful his ministry is. 
Okay, speak, buddy, speak. Let me hear what you got. They're not hearing what he's got. They're just wowed by this man's personality. Man or woman's personality. Because they're out there, both sexes. He says, we persuade. Meaning that they're the, the, the goal of being a great speaker and an orator and of Greco-Roman lecturing and discussing and talking was persuasion. Try to make a great case for when it was all said and done, you were wooed by my intelligence and by my, just my articulate way of delivering things. We just couldn't resist. We just couldn't deny. The man is right. And he is saying, no, we're trying to persuade others. How and why? Because of the fear of the Lord. That's our motivation. Our motivation, as he says here, but what is known to God is their ministry. They've been called by God. He says, and I hope it's known to God. He goes, I hope it's known to you. I hope it's in your conscience. You understand where I'm coming from and where we as apostles are coming from. He goes, we're not trying to commend ourselves. Remember he was saying, you know, these guys come in with a portfolio full of letter of recommendations from people they've seen, people they know, and they network really good. He says, we're not trying to do that again. He says, but I want to give you cause to boast about us. You know who we are. You know who I am. You know why I came here. You know the gospel I preached to you when you became Christians. You know why this church exists. You know the very foundation of why it exists. We don't need to prove ourselves. He goes, when they start challenging me, and they start challenging the gospel, and when they start challenging the ministry of the apostles, he says, I want you to boast for us. I want enough evidence in your life that you know who I am to protect me, to defend me. He says, so that you may answer those who boast about outward appearances. Paul's got ugly legs, and he's pretty ugly, and he's not that great, and he doesn't speak that well. All the outward appearances that 1 Samuel chapter 16 says, God doesn't look at the outside appearances. God looks upon the heart. He says, I want you to know my heart. I want you to know where I'm coming from. I'm not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, he says. And if we are in our right mind, it's for you. He's just saying, you know, there are times when we may not seem to make any sense. And some people think we're not right. But, in, but he says, it's for, it's, if we, you may not understand what we're talking about, he says. But if, we want you to understand that we are in our right mind. And it's about who God is. It's all for you. He says for this. This is the reason. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Do you see that? It controls us. It constrains us. It, the word means that it holds us in his grip. We're held in the grip of something. It contains us. It holds us. It shapes us. It molds us. That's what this means. And he says, it's the love of Christ that constrains us, that controls us because we are convicted about this. We've concluded this. That Jesus, the one has died for all. And therefore, all have died. And he died for all. Now, if you read those three phrases by themselves, we all should realize that we become, we've got the gospel wrong and it's, we become Unitarians or Universalists. Right? They, 
Jesus died for everybody, so they don't need to become Christians. And that's where churches are out there. And that's where people call themselves Christians are out there saying, you don't need to be a good Christian. You don't need to be a follower of Christ. Christ came to help you in the religion that you're in, just to be intent about it, just to be purposeful about it. You can be a good Muslim. You can be a good Buddhist. You can be anything, anything you want to. Just be passionate about it like Jesus. That makes you feel good, right? He says, we've concluded this. That one died for all. So what does he mean? He is not talking about universal. And what he's talking about, remember when he used many times, he used the word all. He is not saying now, not just for the Jews. It's for everyone. It is not now a Jewish gospel. It is a humankind. It is a Jew. It is a Gentile. It is a gospel for all people groups. That's what he's talking about. Not universalism. But that Jesus is the savior of all people, all kinds of people, all ethnic groups. You see my adjective, you see why I'm describing? Because he says this, he died for all that those who live. Now you see the particular part of that? It's particular. It's about who? About these people who live. Not everybody lives. If everybody lives, then Jesus is, is telling, I mean, Paul is telling everybody that there's no skin in the game. And it's not true. There's a particular atonement. Jesus died for his people. In the beginning of Matthew, when, when Mary came and was talked to the angel, he says, he is coming to save his people, his people from their sins. In the Old Testament, the Jews. Who, were, who did God die? Who did, you, who did God love and God prosper and God benefit and God protect? The Jews. He didn't say anything about the Hittites and the Jebusites and all of you, I jokingly say, and all the other termites and mites you can find in the Bible. He didn't, he, it, it doesn't say, oh yeah, and those guys over there, they're fine. Those Assyrians, about, they're fine. I love them too. <laughs> you can't go in the Bible and read any of the prophets. And how he, he just indicts all of humanity. He goes after the Jews because of disobedience. And then he goes after all these nations. There's a peculiar, folks, a peculiar atonement taking place here. And I know it may be hard to understand, but Jesus died for the people that God gave him to die for. It's called particular redemption. Or, as pejoratively put by those who oppose John Calvin and Reformation theology is that they said it's limited atonement. But it's really a particular type of atonement. It's not limited. It's really a particular redemption. Who did Jesus die for? Jesus says he came to give his life as a ransom for everybody, right? No. Gave his life for a ransom for many. And this it took me a while to get my head wrapped around this, but Jesus did not die in vain for people who never accept him. His death is so valuable to think that Jesus died on, my, on the cross for me and I just go to him. It's just, can't, I can't fathom that. And so, John, and so Paul is saying here, he died for those, for those who live, that they no longer live for themselves but, I, but instead, he says, but for him who for their sake 
He died and was raised. He, substitutionary atonement. He died. He was a substitute. That's what the gospel is. Someone died in our place. That's what we're happy about. That's what we should be rejoicing about. That's what this whole Bible, I think, Reformation theology is hinges upon. It's what the Bible teaches, that Jesus died. What does Jesus say? Father, I have not lost any that you have given me. Has God given uh, Jesus everybody? No, only those that have given him. And it's a particular type of redemption. And he says here that we, only the Jews, in the Old Testament, that, that uh, exercised or, or uh, observed the Day of Atonement, right? Did the Babylonians worship the Day of Atonement? Did they celebrate the Day of Atonement? No. They could care less about who God was. They worshiped their own gods, their local gods. And so what, so what it was in Judaism now points to Christ, that scapegoat, that putting your hands on the head of the goat and sending the goat far away to camp and then putting their sins upon the goat and slaying the goat, the goat and burning the goat and sprinkling the blood of the goat, meaning that there were sacrifices. Someone had to pay. And so the symbolic way they did it in the Old Testament was that there were sacrifices. It was a bloody mess. The Day of Atonement was bloody. It was ugly because sin is bloody and ugly. The effects of sin is terrible. Feel it in your body. Feel it in your heart. We've been alienated from God. We're alienated from each other. We look in the mirror and some days we hate the person we see. That's alienation in the Garden of Eden. You know, they hid from God. They were alienated. They hid from each other. They saw they were naked. They were alienated from each other. Creation then starts fighting against them. Even creation is alienating them. So we see that sin has this total effect upon all humanity. And there needs to be one person who pays the price, and that's who Jesus is. And that's what he's talking about here. And Jesus died for those because those who live, and those who live, the Bible teaches us, you're dead until you come to Christ. Those who come to Christ live, now live by faith. He says this, notice this, substitutionary atonement for him, in, for their sake, in their stead, in substitute for them, he died and was raised. That's the gospel, people. It's not how prosperous you are. It's not how well your life is going. It's not anything else about benefits. It's about someone who died historically thousands of years ago and was raised from the dead. And God said, this is my son who I'm well pleased. And when God was pleased, he caused his son to be raised from the dead as a sign of yes. It's complete. It's over. My anger against my people are over. You now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 16, now he says the consequence of knowing the gospel, he says, therefore, from now on, we don't look at anybody according to the flesh anymore. The book of Ecclesiastes, the frustration, the vanity of life is what? From a person who doesn't see anything else but horizontally. Remember we looked at that? The, the, the anguish. The, the, the mystery, what is God doing? What's going on in my life? I'm no better than a dog. When the dog dies, the dog gets buried, and that's where I go. 
I work and I work and I work and for what? I accumulate all this wealth so I can give it to somebody else? Will they even remember me? You see that, that futility of life that the book of Ecclesiastes is about. He is saying, Paul is saying now, for those who recognize that Jesus died for you, we, don't, we, cannot, we cannot look at life the same way. We are transformed in our life, in our thinking. We are not bound to this earth anymore. This is not our home. Remember I said, nomads have no place to go, and pilgrims have a destination. And what does the Bible call us? Pilgrims. We're sojourners. Why? Because we're longing to go home. He goes, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though once we, Paul, Paul hated Jesus. He hated the people who loved Jesus. He killed them. He thought Jesus was a heretic. He thought Jesus was a traitor. He thought Jesus was up, uh, turning upside down Judaism, wanted nothing to do but to wipe out the people that followed him. He understood totally from a fleshly perspective, though it was religious, he was bound into that flesh. He was bound in that earthbound view of life. And he says, we, I know what it feels like. I know what it's like. He though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. He says, we no longer. We no longer do so. We regard him no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Now this is a great blessing. A great blessing to understand that we are new. We've been given a whole new beginning. We've screwed up before. We've messed up before. And we're going to continue to mess up until we come to understand that living my life the way that I want to live my life, according to the rules I want to live my life, or according to the world telling me to live my life, or the people telling me to live my life, is going to take me to the judgment seat, and I'm in trouble when I get there. He says, but now in Christ we are new. Why? Because the Old Testament promises the newness. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. In verse 8 he says... Thus says the Lord, in the time of favor I have answered you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, to say to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness appear. They shall feed along their ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. He who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all of my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. Behold, these are from the north and from the west. And these are from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, singing. Why? Why? Because there's a new creation. There's a new relationship that God has promised to Israel. And this is an anticipation of the day when the Messiah comes. Turn with me to chapter 50, uh, 53. Oh, yeah, 53. 43, I'm sorry, 43. 
verse 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. He's talking about the first exodus. He is pointing to when they were going to the, through the sea and, the, and, they, were, and they passed through and the Egyptian uh, war, uh, fight, uh, Pharaoh's army was going through. And you know what happened, that, that God brought the waters come back to vanquish those who were trying to conquer his people. So he is looking back at the old exodus, and now he is saying we have a new exodus. And this is who Jesus is. He's taken us out of prison. He's brought us out of the prison of sin. He's brought us out of that, that uh, darkness and that captivity that we were in, in sin. And now is our new Savior leading us to a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And so he says here, verse 18, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor the jackals and ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the, in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. To my chosen people. Not to all people, but to my chosen people. The people whom I form for myself. That they may declare my praise. Paul is saying, if you deny me, you deny Christ. If you deny Christ, you deny the, the new covenant. You deny the promise of restoration. You deny the peace that God is going to bring you, that the atonement was pointing to, to all those sacrifices are pointing to. You are denying your peace and your freedom and your uh, restoration and reconciliation with God. He's saying, so listen to those guys. But those guys are not preaching from the word of God. These guys don't know the word of God. He says in, in chapter 11, these people are preaching another Jesus. He says they're being deceived like Eve. He says the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What does he mean by this? He is saying the new kingdom is now in Christ. We don't need to wait for the new kingdom to come, even though it's much more glorious than we're experiencing now. Jesus says in Mark, if you see me cast out demons by the very finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. By Jesus coming, he has brought the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, not waiting for it, but now we are in it, folks. I believe it. And he says here, this is why he says we are in a new age. The new age has broken into this old age, and we, as Christians, are celebrating and are feeling that newness because we are being recreated by the power of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. He goes, and if you deny that, you're denying that work that God is doing in Christ. You are new. The new is gone. The new has come. The old is gone, he says. And he says, all is this from God. Notice, it's all from God. Sola Christa, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. The gospel needs to be preached each week. 
It needs to be all about Jesus. It's talking about reconciliation. It's not about your power. It's not about your self-actualization. It's not about how great you are. It's not about what God promises you in prosperity. It's not about any of that stuff. It's not about how great a parent you're going to be. I can give you the A through Zs of financial assistance, and you keep, you're going to hear that from me till the day I leave. Is that there are people peddling the word of God, and it's not the word of God. It's therapeutic, it's moralistic, and it'll kill you. Because it does not talk about the judgment, it does not talk about sin, it does not talk about the reconciliation of the gospel. And notice where Paul grounds it all. His compass keeps on going back. He says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. It isn't that we've got to get it right Wait a minute, I got, God's got to be right to me. I got to get God right. He doesn't make any sense to me. It's us getting right with God. He said he is reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us, but now entrusting us, giving us the message of reconciliation. Now we take the message that Christ died for you and me because we are totally helpless without him totally helpless without him there is no plan b there's only plan a and it's jesus he says therefore we are ambassadors for christ folks i have no power in myself to tell you anything god's called you and me to be ambassadors as he called paul to be ambassadors and are there ambassadors are there american ambassadors to america no they're ambassadors for a kingdom to another foreign land. And we don't live here. This is not our home. We live for the kingdom of God. And we are ambassadors pointing people to the work that God is doing now through Christ. Pointing. Remember? Pointing to that future. People are saying, I said last time, you know, oh, you know, the pie in the sky when you die. But no, while you wait, you can have steak on your plate. You know, that kind of stuff. And that's where they're telling people, oh, you can feel right now, God, you're a king's kid. Oh, man, you've got all these blessings. You deserve it. You deserve money. You deserve a promotion. Go to home and just claim it and be it and have it. You can be yours. And nausea, folks. You want to vomit when you hear this stuff. Because you see the lives of people that are given every day in their lives. There are more people dying for the gospel, not flying around in jet planes, not living in mansions. Not having suntans and looking like they've been at the beach all week long. Not talking about God saying, I don't like fives and tens. God doesn't like fives and tens. Start giving me higher currency because God deserves it. It's stupid. And I get animated about it because I can't believe how ignorant we are to allow people to go to those places that we know and say, that's a cool place. It isn't, folks. It is not. We need to be courageous about this stuff and tell people because we are ambassadors we are ambassadors for christ are we not are we not we are ambassadors for christ and who speaks for who when the ambassador speaks does he come up with his own program does he come up with his own power an ambassador back then came and sat up the chairs and got the scene ready for when the king came not he was the show. The ambassador wasn't the show. The king was coming. Well, he was a servant getting the place ready for the king to come. That's the kind of ambassadors we are to a foreign group of people 
to a people who live in this world, who are earthbound, our daughters, our sons, our family, our co-workers, our enemies. That's what Paul says, I can't help. I can't help the God. I'm, I'm just constrained by it. I'm, I'm, I just can't help but proclaim it. Notice what he says here. He goes, God is making his appeal through us. He goes, we implore you. Imploring is someone getting on their knees and, and beseeching somebody to listen to them. It's not that anybody should beg. It's saying, I want you to understand this message is so important, people. You need to get it. Whether you like me or not, it isn't the point. This is who it is. This is who Jesus is. This is what it's all about. For our sake, he made him no him to be sin, who, who know no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's, that's a classical, we've seen here, right, we've seen substitutionary atonement, We've seen, I didn't mention it, but we've seen justification, right? We became peace with God through Jesus Christ. So now we have right, we're justified right with God. We are now in perfect, perfect standing with God because of Jesus, through Christ. Now he talks about imputation. And you know, I've talked about imputation a lot. Imputation is crediting, right? Jesus has looked at our bill toward God and said, you owe me, oh, it's ridiculous. There's no figure to tell you how much you owe. It's just, there's no numbers left. I can't fit them on the bill. They're just, you owe so much. You owe everything. In fact, you need to give me your life. But you know what? Once you give me your life, you're dead. It's over with. But what Jesus does is Jesus goes to it and says, Jim, wow, what a bill. But I'm going to pay it for you with my life. I'm going to pay, it for it with, pay for it with my righteousness. Because God loves me. He loves me so much. And he can't love you anymore. Or as much as he... He can't love you any more than he loves me now. I mean, what an amazing thing, folks. I hope you can get that. I tell you that all the time. We can't be loved by God any more than God loves us right now. Because if he loves us in Christ, that's his son. He loves his son really a lot. And so what he does is that he takes our bill and he pays for it. And you know what he does? He takes the debt. So God credits our righteousness, Christ's righteousness, to us. Now remember, it's not our righteousness. We are given Christ's righteousness. So not to get a big chest about this. The fact is, is that we are given Christ's righteousness. It is his given to us. Now Christ gets a bum deal out of this just joking because he is now imputated or given our sin not that he became sin just like we don't become righteous we are given his righteousness we are it's a credit to us as righteous and we can live righteous lives because we want to live like jesus but as he says he had no sin he now becomes sin why on the cross does god say to jesus why does God, Jesus say, look up in the day of the cross and said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God could not look at his son because he was so ugly, full of sin. All he could see was sin. All he could see was your heart and my heart and all the good things we think we've done and all the terrible things that we don't even know that we've done and the terrible things we've known that we've done. 
And it says here, he goes, that's the amazing thing. This is the gospel. He who had no sin came up and saying, let me take care of it, Jim. Let me give you my life. He says, working with him then, working together with him, we appeal to you not to receive this grace of God in vain, people. He goes, make sure you understand the gospel. And then behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the time of salvation. Go back and read chapter 53. Half of 52, 12, all the way to 53 of the book of Isaiah. What does he talk about? It's the suffering servant. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was marred. He was, he was tortured. He didn't say a word when he was beaten. He didn't say a word through this whole time. He was led like a sheep to slaughter. He was the ultimate sacrifice. And what does it say there? He gave his life to everyone? No. He gave his life for many. And for you and me, not to pound our chests and not to say, wow, I'm one of the many. But wow, I'm one of the many? I'm one of the many? I understand I, that I've received that grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's what motivates us. That's what he says. That's why he doesn't lose heart. That's why he says, be of good courage. That's why he says, we, we, what other message can there be? What most important thing on the face of the earth is to tell people about Jesus? And again, there are some people who are evangelists and find every opportunity they can to talk about Jesus in the right way. Not in a stupid way, but in the right way. And then there are some of us who God just gives us the opportunity to plant a seed, to hug somebody, to smile at somebody, to feed somebody, to just open the door for somebody, to do, be nice to somebody, to talk to somebody nice, treat somebody nice, be, be humane, be human being about it. God gives you that ability for that nurturing and building a relationship with somebody that maybe the opportunity may come for you to tell them about Jesus. But, folks, we all have that same. Whether we're called to be evangelists or whether we are evangelists or whatever, the fact is, is that it's the same message. It's the same powerful message that Paul says constrains me, grips me. I can't live for myself anymore. I can't just be satisfied being earthbound. I need to understand, as he says, I need to understand what life is. Why do I exist? I've been given this life now because of Christ. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now I live my life according to his word because we want to be like Jesus. So that's, there's a lot more to be said. And I've, I've gone, again, 10 minutes over. Uh, but, folks, this is important stuff, right? Come on. And again, I, I, we jokingly talk about me and being Italian and being crazy and, you know, and being animated and all this stuff. This is so important. You could, be, you could be as quiet as a church mouse and still articulate this and still be as powerful. Still be as powerful. The words can come out, John, Jonathan Edwards, I told you, read, read from a script and then looked up to the ceiling and read from a script and looked up from the ceiling. Look what God did through him. Brought great revivals. So, 
this is, it's the content. This stuff is so important. It's important to all of us. It should be. And if it's not, then you need to talk to me. You need to talk to Jeff. Talk about, you need to talk to anybody in this room that wants to talk about Jesus. You need to talk about saying, what is so important? You're pretty passionate about it. What's the big deal? We'll be glad to tell you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we...